This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, this is Rick Allen from Def Leppard, and you're listening to Jay Scott on Hook Rocks. Hey everybody, what's going on? What's happening? Hope you're doing well out there. Hope you're staying cool, staying safe, staying healthy, staying strong. Once again, this is Jay Scott and you're listening to The Hook Rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast. Summer is upon us. It is here. Things are getting back to normal as close as we know it. Uh, may take a little bit to get fully normal or maybe we'll never be 100% to what we were before, but we're able to do things. We're able to get out and about. June 11th, Chicago opened up without any restrictions inside outdoor places and indoor places. So ball games are at full capacity. Concerts will be at full capacity. It is exciting. It is here. And we're finally able to go see some live music. I hope it lasts. I hope we don't have any setbacks. So who knows? But uh, as I always say at the beginning of every show, we are part of the Pantheon Podcast Network, the Network of Music Podcast. You can check my out my friends on Shout Out Loudcast, the Kiss esque podcast. Tom and Zeus do a great job over there. Cobras and Fire, just comedy and rock. You got to want to check it out. Mistress Carrie, the legend out in Boston. Give her a listen. Vinny Apice and Carmen Apice, along with Ron and Esty, have their own show too as well. And the rock historian Martin Popoff as well as many others. You can check out all the Hook Rocks podcasts on Pantheon Pods, as well as any other place you podcast. So like us and subscribe to us wherever you listen. Follow us on Twitter. Like us on Facebook. Write us a review, too, whether it's on Apple, Spotify, iHeart, wherever. And we always enjoy your feedback. We appreciate it. And we just want to make sure we're here for you on music commentary, music interviews, and introducing you to new bands and getting to know them. My next guest is 
a follower of mine on Twitter and local here to Chicago too, part of the uh, um, suburbs here in Chicago. He's uh, out in the northern burbs, or I'm kind of out in the northwestern suburbs but uh we do kind of we've never bumped into each other to show but now that we've got or i've got this podcast and he's coming on and we kind of talk you know on direct message where we're also part of this group that talks about new music and all types of stuff under the music tent uh, i'm sure we'll probably have a beer together at the next show but i'd like to welcome in rob who is known on twitter as skylab tapes and we're going to get into why he calls himself Skylab Tapes because I, I, I'll even divulge that if you want. <laughs> we will we, we, definitely get into it, absolutely. But, but 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 before we begin, we always ask the same first question every time we have a first time guest on the show, and that is the essence of the podcast. Just like every great rock song has a hook that sucks you in, every rock fan has a moment, whether it's a song, an album, a band, or performance. That hooked them on rock and roll. What was it for you? You know, it's funny. For me, it was uh, the it was the album "The Grand Illusion" by Styx. Um, when that album, there were two albums that came out uh, in 1978 when I was 12, uh, and one of them was uh, that were really influential for me. One of them was ELO's "Out of the Blue," and the other was Styx's "The Grand Illusion." Uh, that was the first actual vinyl record i got myself uh that i bought with my own money um and man i wore that sucker out (laughs) i can't even count how many times i played it uh and you know it was just uh you know up until then i just sort of heard whatever was on the radio whatever music my parents were playing in the car when we'd go on trips when i was a kid but uh uh, that was the beginning, and that was the beginning not only of a uh, you know lifelong love affair with rock and roll, but with uh, with buying vinyl, <laughs> uh, which, as you know, is something uh, you know I still very actively do today. Where did it go from there? I mean, that's a big album, especially here in Chicago. Um, what what right, was next Chicago for you? Band. Yeah, yeah, you know it, the the. Of course, it was uh, it was long enough ago that it, you know that it was a little fuzzy. Here were a couple of others that were that were like really memorable, and and in some ways not just because of the music, although certainly that's always first for me, but also uh, you know of the sound. So you know, a couple more years passed, and uh, and ACDC's Back in Black came out, and that's one of those albums that like you know not only of course do i know every note of it and uh, you know who that's our age doesn't right i mean when i grew up in high school if you didn't own dark side of the mood led zeppelin four and back in black on vinyl you basically didn't exist (laughs) (laughs) so you know all of those got played a ton but back in black like i can i can hear the sound of that album not just the music, but the sound of it in my mind without actually listening to it, right? It has a very distinct sound and a very good sound, right? I mean, it is a good sounding record, um, but, it, it, you know, but it does have kind of a sound, especially true for that is the sound of the opening bell in Hell's Bells. Um, uh, you know, there, and that, and, and it, it's actually one that, and we may get into this a little, it's one that honestly digital does not get right. Um, in my opinion, the way that that sounds played, that bell sounds played on vinyl is like nothing else. 
and it's very, it's, as you can probably tell, it's very evocative for me. So, you know, that was, uh, that was that. And then of course, uh, you, you know, you are also aware from some of our conversations, I, you know, I got heavily into progressive rock and it was, you know, it was an era for that. So I started listening to Rush and Pink Floyd and King Crimson. Uh, and you know, that over time evolved into the kind of music I actually like the most. I like, uh, I, you know, I'll often tell people I'm a great lover of challenging music. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I like some simple music for sure. Uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's catchy that, uh, that I will listen to and enjoy beyond a shadow of a doubt. But, uh, but I do love, uh, complicated rock and roll. Um, and, you know, there, and there's a lot of both progressive rock and metal that I put into that category that, you know, typically, uh, you know, I, I started to gravitate to back then and that I still gravitate to now. What is it about that? The complex tones and the music and the arrangements about certain bands in metal and rock and roll that, that attracts you. I think some of it is, uh, you know, some of it's the juxtaposition, right? I mean, there, there are, uh, you know, there are bands, uh, you know, and even, you know, relatively modern bands like, uh, like Opeth and Dream Theater and uh, Stephen Wilson, Porcupine Tree, that you get this, uh, you know, kind of contrast, even within a given song of, you know, really beautiful medley and then sometimes melody, I should say, and then sometimes, you know, really brutally heavy music. Um, and, uh, you know, that there's something about that, that juxtaposition in music that I find, uh, you know, just sort of enthralling. Um, and so there's a, you know, there's a lot of the, you know, a lot of the bands that, uh, you know, that I listen to, uh, you know, now, but even back then have, you know, somewhat of, uh, you know, of that bent to it. Um, you know, there, and of course the, you know, the thing that was originally got me into that kind of music was King Crimson, who came, you know, flying out of the gate with that sort of thing with, uh, 21st century schizoid man. Right. I mean, it was sort of the, it was, the, it was almost that song by itself basically launched progressive metal as a category. Um, and, uh, you know, there, uh, and for me, that was sort of a clincher and what started me down that path, which I've, uh, which I've stayed on. The great thing about it is that, uh, you know, while, while there have been eras of, or areas of rock and roll that have ebbed in the last 20 years, progressive rock really hasn't. Um, there's a lot of progressive rock that's been made in the last two decades and a lot of fantastic progressive rock that's been made in the last two decades um, by modern progressive rock bands. I mean, I'm not just talking about albums created by you know the guys who are still kicking from the 70s and 80s. Um, and, you know, that's also been nice, right? It's not like it's been crazy hard to find rock bands in, in that genre. The same is true with metal. Um, you know, metal really hasn't ebbed much either. Um, you know, it's not as in quite as in the mainstream as it was when you'd hear Judas Priest on the radio. Um, but, uh, uh, but it still is, uh, you know, it's still easier to find than it has been, uh, you know, some of the more traditional rock and roll genres. Yeah, I would say that's true. I think because metal has a home and progressive have homes that, you know, where the fans of that type of music know where to go, where I yep. think with rock and roll and hard rock, blues rock, uh, I don't know if there's a definitive home for it, where which means you, know, you can go on several different platforms and find it, but also with those several different platforms, you know, you can get lost finding it, too. 
and it doesn't really give a true representation of what's good and what's really kicking. You know, whereas progressive metal fans and heavy metal fans are loyal to the cause, are loyal to the music, and they stay loyal and they stay in it. And where I think is where hard rock and blues rock, you know, you've got your classic rock bands that really don't appreciate anything new. A lot of them don't. The large percentage of classic rock fans have like a flat out refusal to listen to anything new or as progressive and metal fans still want to hear new stuff because they find it interesting. Right. Um, at least that's, my I think take that's absolutely, yeah. I think that's absolutely right. I really do. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, it, you know, it's funny. It, it, it maybe isn't even as true as it should be, but I mean, that was the whole point of the term progressive rock. Right. I mean, it, you know, it was supposed to be boundary pushing and, and, you know, and genre pushing. Um, and, uh, and, uh, you know, I think that, you know, well, there are some aspects of progressive rock that are a little formulaic. Um, the bands that are more interesting, I think, you know, still very much treat it that way. And there are, and, you know, you've also seen, I think, more of a willingness of some of the older guard of progressive bands to, you know, do tours with or shows with uh, uh, younger progressive bands. Like, I mean, think of the Cruise to the Edge, for example, which is the, you know, rock and roll cruise, uh, the progressive rock and roll cruise that happened. Uh, uh, up until the pandemic, and I think is actually going to happen again in, in 2022. Uh, you know, while yet while you would for sure get uh, you know the big guys from the 70s still uh, who are playing on each of those cruises, you'd also get lots and lots of you know younger and more modern progressive rock bands playing uh, you know on that same in that same venue. So uh, you know, there I think that sort of also uh, is indicative of your point. Yeah, and it's it's also too when you think of progressive and metal fans, there's only less than a handful of progressive bands that can play arenas and stadiums and fill it. That's right. And there's only that's right a handful of metal bands that can fill arenas and stadiums. Yep. You know, so what that does is it causes those fans to go into those smaller venues, you know, small Very theaters, true. clubs to listen to that stuff. Whereas they become more of akin to, you know, accepting that, you know, these bands and also they look at the bands as their own. It's like a big family, right? Yeah. And, you know, when there's a new kid in the family, they want to check it out where, you know, I, I, I keep, I keep saying this, but you know, there's some people that won't listen to anything blues based rock or rock and roll after 1992. And, you know, it's their loss, but sure is you know it um there's definitely a healthy music rock music scene metal scene progressive scene it's certainly not dying it's certainly not dead it just lacks as i've said before the relevancy it needs yeah and i hope that, i mean i hope that changes the amount of i mean even you know as i've learned from uh you know from some of our interactions and some of the other folks uh, uh you know that we you know that we've been talking to on twitter about it i mean there really is an incredible amount of Based heavy rock that's being made right now. Um, I mean, uh, kind of an incredible amount, and so much of it's really good. Uh, you know, I, how to get more exposure for that though? I mean, that's your that's your uh, purview, man. Uh, you know, I don't. <laughs> I wish I knew. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes you can get lost in like there's so much new stuff coming out this year that you got to slow down, pump the brakes a little bit, and give everything you know an equal listen because it's really easy to move on to another album because there's so much stuff coming out 
and it's yeah, hard to really point. keep up. So you mentioned something, you know, in the introduction when you were talking about black back in black and yep. you talk about, you remember the sound of the album. When you talk like, when you talk about that and you refer to that, what do you mean by it? So it's a, you know, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing for me. It's difficult to completely separate the album itself and the music that's on it from the recording of the album. Um, and you know, it is, uh, it is somewhat possible, um, for an album of music that might not be, you know, completely top shelf, um, to be of more interest to me than it might be otherwise if the recording is exceptionally good. Um, uh, and, and I actually give a couple of examples of that in a second. Um, and by the same token, you know, it's possible to have music that's fabulous that, you know, I will listen to less, um, if the recording's so terrible that I find it difficult to do. Right. And, you know, there, are, you know, there are so many minefields of all of that. It's, uh, you know, and, and so much to talk about that, it, you know, it could take days. But, you know, there are a couple of examples. You know, there, one of the bands that I really like that I admit is a little outside of, uh, you know, kind of the bulk of what I often listen to is Steely Dan. Right. And there's no question that, well, I think Steely Dan is terrific music. My enjoyment of albums like Steely Dan's Asia have as much to do with the sound of the album as the music that's being played on it. I mean, that album sounds so good, it's ridiculous. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, of course, you know, recorded in the heyday of analog with a gigantic budget in an unbelievably good sounding studio. And it sounds that way. And, 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 and maybe importantly, recorded by two guys who cared a lot. I mean, uh, you know, Walter Becker and Donald Fagan cared deeply about the sound of their record. I mean, it was as much about the sound for them, uh, you know, in recording it as it was for, uh, you know, the people listening to it. And I mean, they took, they ended up taking that to just a ridiculous extreme on the, on their album Gaucho. They brought Mark Knopfler from Dire Straits into the studio and he recorded like, I, can't, I don't know, some, he was there for like a couple of days and recorded some ridiculous number of takes. And in the end, they used like eight seconds of his playing on the album. <laughs> wow. So, I mean, there was, you know, there were, you know, there were, you know, there were those kinds of recordings in the seventies and, and, and it, it's, it's gone way past like, you know, just that. I mean, there are, you know, a more modern, uh, 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 example of that. And one of my favorite, uh, actually really my favorite recording artist, uh, Stephen Wilson, um, who had a, progressive rock band uh, called Porcupine Tree in the 90s and 2000s and now records as a solo artist. In addition to making his own music, uh, you know, he has done um, uh, 5.1 remixes of lots of classic prog albums, like almost the entire catalogs of Yes, King Crimson, Jethro Tull. You know, those have all been reissued, uh, remixed by him. Um, and he's sort of the premier guy, if you want, to you know, reissue your album not just uh, the way it sounded, but you know, to improve the way it sounded. Um, so, and, and those, I mean, most people swear by his um, remix and reissues of, of those records as being the best sounding versions there are. 
So, uh, you know, there, you know, that's not, you know, it's not just the fact that there were, you know, some glorious heyday recordings in the seventies that have that, you know, just classic seventies analog sound, uh, you know, there, um, which I do think are really fun to listen to, but there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of good, uh, recording practices going on now, but there's some, also some real problems. Um, I, you know, I don't know if you're familiar at all with this whole concept of the loudness wars. No. Um, but yeah, so this is the, this is the, this is one of the big, big things that, that get audiophiles, you know, really lathered up in, uh, you know, in, in what's happened to music in the last, you know, 15, 20 years. Um, you know, digital audio should, and that's the operative word here, it should provide better dynamic range for music than vinyl does. Technically, um, you know, from a, you know, from a electrical perspective, right, from a specifications perspective, the dynamic range, and dynamic range is the, is the difference between the softest sound and the loudest sound on the album. And when that difference is great, when the dynamic range is great, music has more impact, right? It's more, I, I believe, that you connect with it more emotionally because, you know, there's more life to it. It breathes more when it has more dynamic range. Uh, digital should have, and again, technically can have much more dynamic range than uh, than vinyl does. Not than all analog, but vinyl specifically. Um, unfortunately, uh, what's happened is, and especially over the last you know ten, fifteen ish years, um, is that in order for uh, music to sound louder when it's played on the radio, um, it's been dynamically squashed. Um, to the point where, you know, everything sounds kind of at its maximum level, um, and the actual amount of dynamic range in the music is minimal. So while theoretically, uh, a compact disc can have a dynamic range of, uh, you know, like 120 dB, that's purely theoretical. Um, uh, but that's a lot. A typical modern pop or rock album has about 8 dB of dynamic range, which is considered very poor. Um, and it doesn't have to be that way. And so one of the things that's really, that's the true definition of irony is that very often the LP version of that same recording will be mastered differently so that it has more dynamic range because you can't actually push vinyl quite the same way that people do CDs. So you'll have vinyl versions, you know, that are over twice the dynamic range of their digital counterparts when, you know, there's absolutely no technical reason for that to be true. And in, in the current era where all recordings are originally, or, you know, 99.99% of them are originally digital recordings anyway. You know, there are, you know, there are, there are almost, there have been a few notable exceptions, like there was one Lady Gaga album, they made a big deal about the fact that they recorded it to analog tape a couple of years ago. But the, the overwhelming majority of albums recorded today are recorded digitally, right? Um, and so, you know, when they're, when they're pressed to, when they're pressed to LP, sure, the LP is analog, but it wasn't an analog recording to begin with. Um, so it's not the fact that the LP is analog that's making modern LPs sound better than many of their CD counterparts. It's the mastering. It's the way that the LP was mastered with more dynamic range than its CD counterpart. And what sucks about that is it was just a decision that was made to try to make the thing sound loud. It does not have to be that way. Are 
some artists better at mastering CDs, or I shouldn't say artists, you know, producers and engineers better at mastering CDs than others? Oh, for sure. I mean, there, you know, there's no question about so it. So it's there not are, just a uniform there. thing. Like, it's a CD, it's going to sound that way no matter what. It really it depends on who's mixing it, mastering it, producing it, engineering it. Uh, 100%. You know, we, it, it's, there are some colossally good sounding compact discs where, uh, you know, they're, uh, they're and, 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 you know, the audio on a CD versus the audio that you could get um, from, uh, you know, from digital streaming, again, a topic we can cover if you want, um, they can be, uh, they can be equivalent, right? I mean, there's a bit, from that perspective, bits really are bits, um, it, you know, if they're, if you've done the digital uh, coding the same way. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, there, you can make, CDs that sound absolutely glorious, and that's kind of the tragedy of it, right? Is that is that for the most part, it's not being done, um, and it really and it really could be. I mean, there, are, you know, and and where where the and and this is where musicians need to think about this a little bit because they often don't. If they care, it can be mastered well, right? But if they don't care, um, then it more often than not is not going to be. So, uh, you know, unless the artist actually wants a final product that sounds good, um, the odds are that they're kind of just lucky if they get that. It's, I've never, I've never heard that before. I mean, I, I've always known there's always been a more intimate sound on vinyl versus the digital, you know, CD mastering and whatnot, but I've never heard it explained to me like that. Um which yeah, is, it's an interesting thing. I mean, vinyl's complex, right? I mean, vinyl is, a, it, it, you know, at, again, at, at its core, you know, vinyl is a very old technology. Um, and while there have been some interesting advances um, that have, uh, you know, that have continued to make it sound better and better, and it really does sound great, it does have limitations. Uh, you know, I mean, they're, one of the limitations, of course, is that you can only fit so much on a given LP side um uh without really making it sound better and by the way this isn't necessarily widely known but the more the more music you put on a side of an lp the worse it sounds <laughs> um which is why you know as opposed to try to squeeze a bunch of music onto an lp side more and more lps are issued as two lp right because people are not bands are not thinking in terms you know in the 70s bands were like okay an album can't be more than 40 minutes long so that's what i'm writing <laughs> <laughs> right and or and if i want to do a double album then i'm doing that but you know you kind of came into a recording session thinking i need 40 minutes worth of music uh, you know in the modern era there's no such limitation in the minds of most musicians they're you know they're when they write an album they just sort of have what they have and they, you know it could be 40 minutes it could be 80 uh it sort of depends but uh, you know there are you know even the cd does have that 80 that 80 minute limitation and even that's probably becoming less and less something that pe that artists think about as as you know even the compact disc starts to become frankly more of a dinosaur than it used to be crazy as that uh, crazy as that sounds but yeah so I mean vinyl has vinyl does have a sound um, it does have a warm sound um, and it's something that a lot of people like I think there are, you know there are certainly people like me that you know like it because of what it is and also because of the familiarity that it has. Um, you know, like uh, what I found with actually a lot of people, and I think you're one of these people who uh, like to buy CDs still, even though they can stream the music in the exact same quality, again, if they try. Um, uh, you know, it's nice to have a physical release for for some music collectors, right? And, I, you know, I, I'm certainly one of those people. 
I like to have LPs. I like cover art. I like I like everything about it. I like the way an LP smells, right? So I mean, they're you know they're all of that stuff. I think uh, I think is good. But in terms of in terms of purely sound quality and why their you know LPs often will sound better than their digital counterparts. Uh, a lot of that today in uh, you know in modern music is that exact issue is uh, is the dynamic range compression or the loudness wars. There's even a website dedicated to reporting how much dynamic range is in any release. <laughs> I mean, there's a website for everything now, right? But um, but there is. I mean, it's it's a well known one. It's uh, uh, you know it's uh, it's the loudness doctor. Um, well, when, so, I, when I think of great sounding albums, modern day my mind immediately goes to two weeks ago, the mammoth debut album. Cause I think that sounds incredibly awesome. I think it sounds great. Um, great record, by the way, it is a great record. What do you think of that album sonically? Well, you're not going to like my answer. Um, uh-huh. but, uh, uh, well, cause I don't think you're, I don't think you're a, really a vinyl guy. Um, but, uh, this was a great example. I mean, there's no question in my mind that the dynamic range was compressed on the digital version of that album. And it sounds much better on LP. Um, I, because I, I mean, I haven't looked yet, but I would be shocked if they weren't, uh, if I, if, if it didn't become immediately apparent that they were mastered differently. Um, I did think the, I did think it sounded a little compressed, uh, when I listened to it. I, you know, I got my album a couple, the LP version a couple days after, um, the, uh, uh, release date. Um, and so my first listen was digital and my second listen was vinyl and, uh, it, sounded much better to me on vinyl again it isn't always the case right but uh but it was uh it was in the case uh in that case i i, I wanted to give you an example of what i listened to on vinyl recently that i didn't think oh uh well it's an album that's going to be on my top 10 list i guess if i don't say where it is it's okay if i mention it yeah yeah sure <laughs> yeah so uh the progressive rock band vola um, they're, uh, uh, they have an album out this quarter called Witness. It's a really great album. Um, the, I actually didn't think the vinyl sounded very good because, uh, I was sort of, I was depressed by that because I think it's a great record. Um, but, uh, it, and my guess is that they didn't do anything special for, uh, that it's probably the exact same mastering. Um, uh, and then in this particular case, I think they also tried to squeeze too much music on it. It's a single LP and, uh, I know that, uh, I mean, it doesn't, it actually, the digital actually does sound better. So it doesn't always work out. Uh, uh, but in the case of Mammoth, in fact, I, when we're done, I'm going to look it up on uh, on uh, the loudness database and see. But I'd be shocked if it doesn't show that the, there's more dynamic range on the LP. The okay. LP, by the way, though, to your point, sounds fabulous. <laughs> I, I thought, I mean, I've got the CD and I thought it sounded yep. tremendous. I mean, I thought it sounded great. I mean, there are albums that I do think are, are way over compressed. And I didn't get that impression from yep. this album. It is generally well recorded for sure. And you know, Wolfgang I'm sure was able to go into a nice studio, right? So it is well, it is generally well recorded. I totally agree. As far as building a sound system, the days of having a stereo, like we used to have when we were younger mm-hmm. are don't exist anymore in terms of the way we think about it, in terms of the way we, we used to have them, you know, we used to have the big speakers on the side and we used to have the, you know, the, the, the tape deck, the CD player, the equalizer, and then the turntable on top or some, some faction of that. And, oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. And, and now, you know, the days of the, you know, the boom boxes with the good speakers too are gone. 
Now it's like this, these little machines with these little speakers that sound good, but you really don't get that dynamic that you mentioned like we used to have, right? When we used to listen to our stereos in our room, I mean, it, it, it just sounded different. And there's a lot of people out there that are building their systems. Maybe they're buying vintage stuff. They're buying new stuff. Yep. One of the reasons why you're on this podcast and on this episode is because of your knowledge with that and your own audio system. Because, ladies and gentlemen, I've seen pictures <laughs> of Rob's system, and I, I would, in a heartbeat, let my house go into foreclosure and move in just to sleep in that room on a nightly basis with that with that stereo system. It is tremendous, or that that audio system because it's now more of an audio system than a stereo. If yeah, I mean, it kind of is, I guess. Yeah. Um, if you were if you were building, if you were someone that's wanted to build a system and you were starting out, the most important thing, I believe, is what you want to hear and how you want to hear it, right? Yep. Um, that, that's, what, that's what matters above all else. I mean, you can have the most expensive co- equipment, top-of-the-line stuff, but if it doesn't sound like you want it to sound, it's all crap, basically. So going into that and determining, or how do you determine what you want to hear, how you want to listen to it? Let's start with that step. Yeah, and it's funny because it used to be so much easier, right? I mean, but in, in you know back in the days that you were talking about when you know there, you know when we were in high school, you know your your status with your buddies was either your car or your stereo, right? right? Um, and you know, no question that those days are long gone, uh, which is a shame. I, you know, I'm obviously a relic in that in that regard to some extent, and that you know, I still, uh, you know, I'm, I still not only do I still have a very fine uh, stereo system or audio system, but I sit right between the speakers with the lights off and listen to it, um, which is something that doesn't happen as much anymore. And I think that really is, you know, that's really the first part of the answer to your question. Right. I mean, there, you know, there are some people who simply aren't going to listen to music except as a background activity. Um, and in that case, you know, there isn't really a need for a fantastic stereo and you probably want something that kind of hides in the room and gets out of the way. Um, and there are plenty of ways to get that done. Um, you know, there, are, and, and in that case, you probably, you know, some people when they're building houses, they do in wall. I'm obviously not a big fan because that's, you know, that's pretty compromised. Um, but, you know, a a typical person who wants music mostly for background listening is going to be more interested in something like the uh, uh, Sonos kind of system where, you know, you get speakers that are capable of playing the music that you're listening to, you know, in any room in the house and you can actually move them around a little bit. And, you know, there are. You know, that system and, and several competing systems are, uh, you know, good at that kind of thing. And, and they provide decent enough sound. It's not anything that I would what personally would want to spend huge amounts of time listening to, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a, a bit of an anomaly in that way. Um, if you're the kind of person that actually wants to spend more time with music as either a purely foreground activity or, uh, you know, at least a little more of a foreground activity, then... Buying more of a traditional stereo is still very, very much possible. And it's possible in kind of almost every price range. Um, there are, I mean, look, there are very, very, very expensive stereos that can be bought. I mean, I, you know, I've gone to audio shows 
There's a really great one in Chicago, by the way, called Expona, um, where you know there every level of stereo equipment is demonstrated in rooms. It's not. It's. Uh, I mean, it traditionally has been out at the in Schaumburg at the Renaissance. Um, and I've heard stereo systems there that, uh, you know, where just the speakers were a quarter of a million bucks. Jesus. Um, oh, uh, and, <laughs> and, and, and I mean, oh yeah. And literally these things, I mean, literally these things are floor to ceiling size speakers. Wow. But I heard, I heard these guys playing Roger Waters amused to death on, on one of these things. And man, I mean, it was, it was a mind altering experience. It really was. It was incredible. Um, but you don't have to spend anywhere near that much money um, uh, in uh, you know in order to in order to get really good sound. And I think that's I think there are a lot of people that think that they do right that you know they think they have to spend gobs and gobs of money to actually buy a stereo. So you know I'm just going to buy one of these little Bluetooth speakers or you know a sound bar for my TV and play music through that and call it good. Um, you know you can get a very decent. Um, uh, turntable for, you know, a couple of hundred bucks. And I mean, really, really quite good. Um, uh, one of our, you know, one of our groove council buddies actually was asking about this the other day and, uh, you know, was looking for a CD player. CD players are actually becoming harder and harder to find, but you get great sound from CDs out of a Blu-ray player. And those are so easy to get at very affordable prices. Um, and then, uh, you know, the most modern stereo amplifiers will also do all of the streaming tricks, right? They do airplay, uh, they'll do internet radio, and they'll do, you know, all that stuff natively. And there, you know, there again, there's a bunch of stuff that's in the kind of, you know, $500 range, uh, you know, that, that you can get. Now, I, I realize I'm not talking about, like, no money here, right? Um, but I, uh, a, quick, a quick story about that. I had a guy giving me, you know, kind of a jovial hard time a few years back about my stereo and what he perceived the cost of the stereo to be. Um, you know, and then I watch him, I watch him drive away in his Tesla. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, look, you know, you pays your money and you takes your choice. Um, uh, you know, I've driven very pedestrian American cars. Um, and I could afford to buy an ex- a more expensive car than that, but I'd rather buy music and I'd rather buy audio gear than I would put a lot of money into a, uh, a really expensive car. Some people, the best sound they ever hear, Jay, is in their car because there are a lot of cars that actually have very good stereos. Um, and you know, they, they'll, you know, they'll put a CD in the car. Sounds great. Come home. They put it on their pathetic little Bluetooth speaker and they're sort of sad and then they stop listening to it, which is a bummer um, because it doesn't cost a ton of money to get a very uh, enjoyable stereo in your house. If you were to put together a system and, and like I said, you know, I think as we move forward with episodes on types of audio systems, I think we're going to be going, you know, on an incline in terms of our conversation. But if you're starting out and you want to spend 250 and below on a system. Where do you start to make your to make that system sound the best? So if I were to if I were to spend 250 bucks or less. And I, you know, I hope that, I hope this doesn't come across the right way. I would buy used and I would start by uh, I would honestly start by going to um, garage sales and estate sales. Um, I have seen people selling 
speakers that I know back in like the eighties and nineties, they probably paid, you know, 1200, 1500 bucks a pair for, for like 50 bucks. <laughs> and you know, the last thing I need personally is another pair of speakers. Um, but you know, there've been times where I'm going, you know, I'm like, I'm like a moth to the flame. We'll, you know, we'll walk by a garage sale. We're not even going to them, right? We'll just walk by one in my neighborhood. Then, you know, I see a pair of old speakers that I know are good. And I start drifting over there. My wife grabs me and kicks me and keeps me on the, on the sidewalk. Right. But, uh, but there, I mean, that is, I mean, if you wanted to really, really get value for your money, that's the way to do it. Uh, 250 is a little below what I think you can buy current gear for. Um, like if you wanted to get the whole thing at once. Um, and end up with something that's, uh, you know, that's probably significantly better than you would get just from buying one of the, um, I don't have the exact right name. I call them Bluetooth speakers. There's some Bluetooth speakers that are pretty hardcore, right? Um, some of them, which I've found are insanely expensive. Um, but like there's, there's a company called Audio Engine, um, that makes really nice Bluetooth speakers that are, uh, you know, that are like a hundred bucks or so. Um, uh, I think they're, they're more expensive pairs, like 200 bucks. So if you've got, you know, one way to start is if you've already got a lot of music on a computer, um, uh, you know, you can get a pair of powered Bluetooth speakers, spend 200 or so bucks on just those. Um, and for whatever period of time, just, you know, stream or play uh, music from the hard drive on the computer. And that can be a decent way to get started. Uh, and then you can move to other, uh, you know, to other components, like maybe adding a turntable or a disc player later. The thing about stereo is, uh, you know, there for a lot of people, including me, uh, you know, it's a, it's not a, it's not a buy it and then never buy it again for, uh, you know, for, um, the rest of your life kind of thing. Um, uh, you know, it's funny because people accept that for cars because they flat out wear out. Um, and there's some parts of, uh, you know, a stereo that could wear out after an extraordinarily long period of time. Um, but I, you know, I, I always advise people, look, if you've got anything currently, focus on one thing at a time. Don't try to buy it all at once. You know, unless you hit the, unless you hit the mega millions or whatever, right? Um, you know, start by buying a pair of speakers, like, uh, you know, and then use them you know, with something existing that you have or something that you, you know, would find used or whatever. Um, and then, you know, the next time it works out for you, upgrade the amplifier. The next time, maybe add a turntable. Um, but, you know, that that actually is an easier way to end up, before you know it, with a fantastic sounding stereo than to try to say, okay, this is how much money I can afford to spend right this second, and I want everything. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. When you're yep. buying equipment, and let's say you're going to buy a turntable, and when you're starting out, you know, and you're and you're interested in building an audio system, and you know, you, not everyone can have a top of the line system, but like you said, you know, the piece by piece thing as you go is interesting because you know you can kind of keep building it and building it. But if you're buying, exactly. it, but, if, but if you're buying speakers, does speakers make everything sound better? Yeah, I mean, fundamentally. Everything ends up going through those, right? I mean, you know, there are the, the variation in the sound, you know, not just quality, but you were talking about it earlier, the, you know, the, the, the sound, the sonic signature of a loudspeaker 
is is the biggest determining factor of what a stereo is going to sound like. Um, the second biggest determining factor actually is going to is going to be a shock to you. It's the room that you put them in. <laughs> no, that doesn't shock me at all. I mean, it, it you know, it what just happened prior to us recording this episode. So I have a I have a really big dog. I have a Bernice Mountain dog, and yep. he's got a very deep bark. So. I I have a hallway that comes from the bedrooms into the main area and the kitchen and everything. And he barked in the hallway where the walls are, you know, closer together. And it like it echoed and it like went right through me. I was like, Jesus, you know, like that was crazy. But when he barks, there's the same bark in the, in the grand room, in the living room that I have, you know, it, doesn't have that effect. So yeah, it doesn't surprise me about, you know, the, the room that you're talking about. Yeah. And just, I mean, simple things like having carpet on the floor will make a stereo sound so much better um, than, uh, you know, than, uh, you know, it will, you know, exactly like you were talking about in your hallway, right? A really lively room. Uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's kind of hard to get good sound. Um, so, you know, things like, you know, things like amplifiers and, and, uh, you know, that, and, Disc players, you know, they are, you know, there are definitely quality levels, and ultimately, that stuff certainly can make a difference. But the differences are smaller, um, you know, than they are with speakers. Uh, you know, the the fundamentally because the technology involves a transducer in a phono cartridge. Turntables are probably the thing that vary the next largest amount um, in uh, in quality based on price. And uh, you know, I. I Every now and then, you know, I'll see a picture of somebody playing a $30 record on a $175 Crossley suitcase uh, turntable. And, you know, I'm not, try- I'm not trying to be snobby here. I'm happy people are playing records. Uh, you know, God bless them. They bought a record. They're playing a record. That's awesome. I'm really psyched about that because it's more demand for vinyl, which for me is a good thing. Um, and, you know. That, that person bought the music of a musician, which is also a really good thing. Um, but that is about the worst way to listen to a record that you possibly can. There's just no doubt about it. I mean, you're getting, you're getting, you know, if you're enjoying the experience again, awesome. But, you know, purely looked at from a sonic perspective, you're talking about the most basic of pop. I mean, the thing, yes, it plays the record, right? But, you know, even, you know, again, even a pair of halfway decent Bluetooth speakers and, you know, a turntable with a slightly, a slight, a, you know, a turntable that's not trying to do everything um, and that has, you know, a little bit better phono cartridge will sound so much better. Um, and I'm talking about, you know, the, the, you know, companies like uh, Audio Technica, um, Denon, you know, they make turntables that are you know, 150 bucks. That definitely will sound way better than you know. They have to be hooked up to an amplifier, right? But they will sound way better than a suitcase turntable is ever gonna. How important is the needle on a turntable? Very. Um, you know, there, there's, there's no doubt about that. I mean, it, it, you know, and it's important for two reasons. One is it is uh, it is the transducer. So it's the thing that you know that that the higher quality you get, the more direct impact it has on the sound. Um, uh, but the other part of it is, of course, that you know a really inexpensive one is going to damage records quickly. Um, you know, a and and again, you, you, we're not talking. I mean, there are 
there are crazy people in this world, right? You can buy a phono cartridge that's 10,000 bucks. <laughs> um, I'm not advocating to do that, but you, uh, but you could. Um, you could also buy a really good Audio-Technica phono cartridge for $49. Um, that's not going to hurt your records. That's going to sound good. And that'll last for, um, you know, depending on how many records you play. Typical life of a good, uh, you know, needle phono cartridge, or, uh, whatever you want to call it, is about a thousand hours, right? Before it needs to be replaced. Um, and so, you know, you get, you'll get good use out of it, uh, uh, for, um, for a very inexpensive, uh, you know, again, probably all in one type of deal where the needle is, you know, obviously it can't be an afterthought by definition, but where it's, you know, not something that, you know, a lot of money was spent on in manufacturing, you know, you, you're not doing your records any favors. That's for sure. You play, you play a record on something like that more than a handful of times and it's going to show some wear. It's sonically, it's going to, you're going to, it's going to sound worn. Whereas, you know, you get something, you know, even slightly more modest that's a little bit better and you can play it as long as you don't play it a thousand times in one day. Um, you know, you could play a record a thousand times and you probably not hear any degradation. How important is where the turntable is placed? Does it matter on the size of the furniture, the size of the table stand, wherever you put it? How important is that? Yeah, it can be. Um, you know, a turntable wants a solid foundation to be on, right? So, uh, you know, it, a, a really wobbly side table is a bad idea. I tell you, that a really terrible idea is to put it on top of your subwoofer. <laughs> um, but, you know, their vibrations are the thing you want to avoid uh, where a turntable is concerned. So, uh, you know, to the extent that you can put it on something that's not, uh, you know, going to be, you know, heavily subject to vibration, either, you know, somebody bumps into the thing and it causes it to skip or, uh, you know, just even heavy footfalls, um, uh, you know, it would be, it would be better. That's really the, that, and of course has to be completely flat. Um, right. Uh, but other than that, um, you know, there, it's really, you know, those are really the only two considerations. When you are putting together a system and you're looking for resources to go to, where should a person go for good resources, good rankings, kind of gives you an explanation of what they're buying in terms of turntables? Yeah, you know, it's a very good question. And it, it, it's, it's one of those things that so much of the, so much of the audio press is so focused on the high end. And, and like, it gives people a warped perspective. I, you know, I admit, so, you know, they're what, what, high-end audio publications that do actual reviews of audio equipment think of as being, you know, quote-unquote affordable gear, uh, you know, most people wouldn't consider to be affordable. Some, like, some people wouldn't even consider it to be remotely affordable. Um, and that, you know, that that means that you're sort of left with the wild, wild west of the internet, including, you know, sites that actually sell stuff uh, and obviously have an agenda in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of what they're saying. Um, uh, you know, there, you know, and then, uh, you know, the other end of the spectrum is you have the stuff, I guess, like CNET, right, where, uh, you know, they'll, they'll rank things, but, uh, you know, it, it, they're, they're treating them more like kind of generic consumer electronics than they are of anything else. Um, uh, you know, it is, it is a, that part of it is actually a bit of a challenge. I mean, I, you know, I get asked a lot, even just on Twitter, 
right? Uh, you know, what would, you know, what would you buy? If I had X dollars, what would you recommend? And I'm always happy to do that kind of thing, uh, you know, because I, you know, there, that, that at least, you know, you're getting someone's opinion, obviously, anytime you ask a question like that, but at least you're getting something that doesn't have an agenda behind it, right? I ain't trying to sell nothing. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there, you know, I do think that actually that kind of question asking can be the best way, um, you know, that and, and just sort of an amalgamation of internet research. There is, I will say, um, a, there's a place in that's actually, I mean, it's a, it's mostly on an online, uh, operation. Um, they're headquartered in Chicago. They're actual, their facilities in Andersonville, uh, called Music Direct. Um, and at least, you know, they say nice things about every piece of equipment that they sell, but at least they sell a really broad range of gear. So it, it's at least a place where you can go and say, okay, this is the total price range of turntables that I can possibly buy from like a hundred bucks to 10,000 bucks. And, uh, you know, what, each of them comes with and does and all that kind of stuff. And they do have some more educational that. And, the, and I, I think it's a Virginia based company called Crutchfield. Um, you know, their website also tries to do as good a job educating people about the stuff they sell, uh, you know, in kind of a reasonable way. As far as maintenance, as far as keeping it clean, what do you recommend? How important is that? Yeah, you know, you need to, you need to, for a turntable, you need to clean the, you need to clean the needle. Um, you know, every, every three, four records. Um, you can buy a tiny little carbon fiber brush on Amazon for like five bucks that'll clean off a needle. That's not very hard. You just got to very gently wipe the, uh, dust off by going from back to front. <laughs> the, the way, you know, it's funny. Some of this stuff, like, you know, people who grew up with turntables from our era, it's just in us, right? It's like riding a bike. And then, you know, some people have never seen a turntable before until they get their first one. And some of those little tidbits are left off. And I see horror stories about people who bought a, tur- bought a brush to clean their stylus with. And, uh, and, uh, you know, they're like, okay, well, I'll just brush it side to side. And they just brush the needle clean off the cartridge. Jeez. Sort of sucks. Um, so yeah, that you know, that's the one part of that whole system that requires the tiniest bit of care. The rest of it's, uh, you know, turntables fundamentally, aside from the phono cartridge, are incredibly simple devices for the most part, right? I mean, uh, you know, there's, there's, you know, it's a motor and some metal and some wood and a very, very small amount of audio circuitry. Um, but that's, uh, but that's it. I mean, they're, you know, they're much, uh, they're much simpler than just about any other piece of uh, equipment in a stereo. And a lot of the new turntables, they have Bluetooth capability as well. Yeah, which is really handy. And, and, and they got smart about it. I mean, there's a thing called a phono preamp that you have to have. And, and you know, almost all of the, you know, relatively entry-level and affordable turntables now come with that built in. They come with that built in. There's a USB connector. There's Bluetooth available. I mean, you know, they're very... You know, they've made most of those, you know, pretty modern devices, you know, whereas my, you know, gigantic direct drive Denon that I'm looking at over here from 1982, obviously didn't have anything like that, uh, you know, as a part of it. But, um, uh, yeah, there, there are so many ways to connect a turntable now that all of that kind of stuff has, you know, which wasn't necessarily that easy back in the day has become now really very simple. 
And what is the most important thing, in your opinion, to look for on a, on a turntable? Or what are what are the the, the important things? I just said, you shouldn't just say one thing, but what are the things that you know a listener, a person that wants to you know play vinyl, should be looking for that a vinyl needs to have or a turntable needs to have? So you know, I, I, the 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 ones that I think. Um, start to get to the point where, you know, there, you really can get a lot of enjoyment out of playing records, uh, you know, to have a, you know, they have a, they have a cartridge that the, the seller of the turntable is actually sourcing from someone else. Typically. I mean, there are a couple of, there are a couple of, uh, um, companies that make both very fine cartridges and very fine turntables that I have, the, the two of them that I actually mentioned, both Denon and Audio Technica do. Um, but uh, you know, there, uh, you know, there are, there are only a handful of companies that make, um, you know, good, affordable photo cartridges. Uh, and, you know, there are a couple of them that are, uh, you know, OEM makers so that they're, you know, offering brandless ones that are put on, you know, that are usually very inexpensive that are put on, you know, the aforementioned suitcase turntables. And then, you know, there are the ones like Audio-Technica and Ortofon uh, that, you know, will have, I mean, the, the maker of the turntable actually mentioned the cartridge brand by name because it's something that they're proud of, right? And that usually is an indication that you're going to end up with something that sounds better. Um, so, uh, you know, that would be something that I would definitely look for. Um, uh, you know, there, um, uh, you know, other than that, um, you know, if, <laughs> if it looks flimsy, it probably is, is another rule of thumb that I have. So, uh, you know, there, uh, you know, there, there are some that are, you know, there are some turntables that you can tell are just by looking at them because it is a, it's a mechanical device, right? Are, you know, clearly better constructed again, even at the, even at the sort of, uh, at the sort of entry level. And there, you know, there have been, because vinyl has become so popular, um, you know, there are a lot of choices. Uh, and there, you know, there's some companies, there was a Kickstarter campaign a few years back for a company called U-Turn Audio, which ended up going swimmingly. Um, and they make a really nice, inexpensive turntable, um, that, uh, uh, and now I think they even make several models of it that were, you know, that were an outgrowth of that, uh, you know, that Kickstarter campaign. So there's a, there's a lot of, uh, there are a lot of options for sure. Um, something where the cartridge is clearly not an afterthought and the thing looks like it's halfway decently constructed is a good place to start. When you talk about used equipment and, you know, we've talked about estate sales and those are pretty much local to wherever the listener lives and what they can buy and what they, what can, you know, they, they can obtain. But as far as online resources, where can someone go that's reputable that they can find used stereo equipment, audio equipment? Yeah, even some of that is local. Um, you know, there, I mean, on the one hand, of course, there's eBay, but eBay isn't any better than garage sales. Right, eBay is just organized garage sales <laughs> um, for for used equipment. Um, now, that's not to say that you can't get some really nice used stereo equipment on eBay. You definitely can. I have, um, but you know, it is that it, it is kind of that same. You know, to a certain extent, you take a bit of a risk. I mean, eBay is very is very buyer friendly these days, so uh, you know your your actual risk is fairly limited. It, the biggest problem with anything like that is that shipping turntables used turntables especially, um, is something that if the person doesn't know what they're doing, the thing's going to arrive in pieces, right? Um, so it is better to buy a turntable locally if you possibly can. 
Now, living in the Chicago area, there's like 10 billion ways to do that, right? Everything from a garage sale to, have you ever heard of the place, Jay, Saturday Audio Exchange? Yes. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's a great place to go buy almost any price level of stereo equipment. And they have a they do sell some new stuff. They have a huge amount of used gear. I, you know, I'm not familiar with other markets, but there, there are undoubtedly other places, you know, there are places like that. Um, interestingly enough, though, for turntables specifically and not for um, uh, other kinds of stereo equipment, uh, it has become not uncommon for used record stores to sell uh, used turntables. Uh, you know, I've walked into a bunch of, of record stores recently and seen, you know, three, four different models of, uh, you know, vintage turntable for sale. You know, the advantage there is, you know, like a Saturday audio exchange, they're checked out and working, right? So it's basically take home, plug in, and, you know, you're good to go. Um, you know, whereas at a garage sale, you're you know, taking much more of a risk with what you buy. Uh, you know, the nice thing is typically when you buy a turntable at a garage sale, you're paying like 25 bucks. So, and you still don't know what you're getting until you get home, you know? 100%. And a turntable that you buy at a garage sale, 100% has to have a new cartridge put on it. And most people don't know how to do that. So, uh, you know, that, that's kind of a limiting factor, you know, there. Whereas, again, you go to a you go to a, a record store that's selling a turntable that they've already done that kind of checkout and tune-up work on. And, you, you know, you're walking home with something that you can just take home and use basically just like a, uh, just like a new turntable would be. When you talk about cartridges, right, do all cartridges go on any turntable? Are there more specific cartridges that can't be put on some tur turntables and vice versa? Some turntables can't have certain cartridges? You know, for the most part, the answer is that, that uh, you know, almost any cartridge will work on almost any turntable. There's, there's one notable exception, and then there's, uh, you know, then there's the kind of, Exception that really only applies um, as you get into higher end equipment, right? So the the there are there are two kinds of mounting for uh, cartridges. The most common by far is the universal head shell, um, and uh, you know that's a couple of screws and the cartridge goes in. And yes, it should be aligned, um, but uh, you know it it will. There's four little wires to connect. Again, this is not something I recommend a novice do at home. Um, but that, you know, fundamentally is, you know, is not that, is not that difficult to do. Um, the, uh, that, you know, at kind of a basic level, um, there were also these turntables that were, you know, in the seventies and I think even in the eighties where they made a thing called a P mount. Um, and the, the concept behind it was sort of sound, which was that there was no alignment to do. You just plug the thing in, um, and it was exactly what it needed to be. Um, uh, the disadvantage, there were some other disadvantages not worth uh, getting into and and it, it never really it actually never really caught on that well um but there are still some p-mount uh turntables out there uh you know in the vintage world uh, you know all of the ones now like any uh, you know any photo cartridge that you bought you know would work well uh, you know there there is a there is an important concept again a buyer of a new turntable or one that's used that somebody has set up this is not something the user is ever going to need to do um, but, uh, you'll probably remember from back in the day, you also have to set the tracking force, right? So there's the weight at the back end of the tone arm that determines how, how much the, uh, you know, tracking force is essentially how heavy the cartridge runs in the grooves. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, all of the things being equal cartridges need to track at about one and a half to two grams. Um, and somebody has to set it up to work like that. Any turntable you buy new comes preset. 
right? At, at, at you know, again, at anything except the super high end levels. So it's coming with a cartridge on it. All that stuff's been done, and you know, you unpack it and off you go. To buy a system, affordable system, what would you recommend for a turntable, and what speakers would you go, would you put with that? Um. Yeah, I mean, if I were if I were if I were trying to buy if I were trying to buy what I thought was a good, you know, a good sounding stereo, um, you know, on sort of as little money as I could spend, but still really feel like I ended up with something good, um, uh, I would buy the uh, the entry level direct drive Audio Technica turntable. Which, by the way, it's interesting. It's really intended as a DJ turntable, but it's not one of those that's purely that. Um, so, uh, you know, plays uh, plays records, uh, you know, for stereo use perfectly well. Um, uh, and I would buy, uh, I would buy the uh, entry level Marantz um, amplifier, um, and you know, kind of a you know a decent size, but not monstrous. Uh, uh, because they would be more expensive, obviously, pair of speakers. You know, there's a bunch of, you know, there are a bunch of good, there are a million manufacturers of speakers. Um, but there's a, uh, there's a bunch of good brands uh, that, that offer, I think, some pretty high-value speakers, including one that I've heard that I really like called Wharfdale. But there's a ton. Um, you know, basically a set of speakers that's a, that's a few hundred dollars. Um, and then, you know, you could have a great-sounding stereo for, Know, probably seven or eight hundred dollars total, um, and and I think it's the kind of stereo that most people would get home and they would be really, really psyched about what they had. Why do you call yourself Skylab Tapes? Okay, so this is a totally unflattering thing. <laughs> so I uh, I was in high school in 1983-84, and during that time, Skylab crashed to Earth. Right, the, the Skylab space station crashed to Earth. So my high school football nickname was Skylab. Um, and it was because my very first game that I actually played in as a sophomore, I played on, I played on a kickoff team. And the very first kickoff, I just got absolutely leveled. I mean, I was, I didn't even, I didn't even know what hit me. One minute I was running down the field, the next minute I was on the ground. <laughs> and that's it. I, one of the guys called me Skylab and it stuck. Where does the tapes come from? Well, I, uh, yeah, so that, I mean, I, I, uh, I added that because it made the Twitter handle available, but I am, you know, we didn't even talk about this. It's a whole other kettle of fish. Uh, you know, I'm a big reel to reel tape guy. Now this is truly like the, you know, the arcane, obsolete technology. No one is, is making reel-to-reel tape decks anymore. You know, there are plenty of them that are out there in the wild, but they 100% have to be, you know, serviced to the line before they're usable. Uh, you know, they're, but reel-to-reel tape, uh, when done correctly, sounds better than anything else there is. Um, and of course, you know, all throughout the 70s and 80s and into the 90s, that's what people recorded on when they recorded albums, right? They recorded to reel to reel tape. Um, it wasn't until, uh, you, know, di- uh, you know, digital got significantly better and something really funny. Um, ori- the original round of digital recordings, things like Peter Gabriel's security, 
and uh, uh, Dire Straits' Brothers in Arms. Um, there are a bunch more examples of like, you know, early 80s digital recordings. They were actually done on digital reel-to-reel tape decks. It was still tape. It had just been modified to, uh, you know, to record digitally and not record in analog. And then, you know, much later hard drives, you know, started to become reasonable for recording studio use. Uh, and that, you know, now, of course, you could buy a terabyte hard drive for 55 cents at, at 7-Eleven. So, uh, you know, but, but that's now, right? I mean, uh, you know, they're throughout, uh, you know, throughout a lot of, you know, what still many people listen to, uh, you know, musically, that was all recorded on reel-to-reel tape. So that's what the tapes come from. Interesting stories, Rob. Interesting. But, uh, no, man, this has been a great episode. Very educational. I hope my listeners find it educational. For those that are interested in building an audio system, because, you know, those days of going to the department store or wherever. I mean, even Best Buy used to have some, uh, some like an audio room back in the day. And I remember... And it, they have a little. Yeah. They still have a little. And Apt was a big thing, too. You know, Apt had a by really, the, you know, big system room. Oh, by the way, they still do for sure. You can buy all kinds of great gear at Apt. No question about it. And listen to it sometimes even, like, in the store, which is handy. <laughs> yeah, I got to make a stop over there because... I'm thinking about upgrading my speakers, and uh, I may go check out what they have. Great place to go to do that, for sure. Well, Rob, it's been a blast. Thank you very much for doing this. Absolutely my pleasure, Jay. Anytime. I really i am uh, I'm thrilled to be on. I hope, uh, I hope at least somebody thought it was interesting. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm sure they did. I mean, this was a great episode. I know it's one that a lot of people do message me about, about audio systems and stereo systems. So I am not an expert on it. I know only what I know, and I know you're really into it, and you're the closest thing that I know to an expert. And basically this whole episode proved that I was right. You pretty much are an expert on this stuff. And, uh, no, I appreciate you coming on and sharing your knowledge. Anytime, man. It was a gaff. All right, Rob. Well, hey, everybody, that's Rob. You can follow him on Twitter at Skylab Tapes. And I'm Jay Scott. This is The Hook Rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast. Stay safe, stay healthy, take care, and we will talk again soon. Thanks.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points. 